Welcome back. Imagine for a second that you're in a group of 10 individuals all looking at an abstract sculpture. You're moving around it, getting a sense of what the artist was portraying, how he was feeling, what was important to him. Then the 10 of you sit down and write your impressions. It's easy to imagine that each interaction with that sculpture would be slightly or not so slightly different. As we're discussing the accuracy and authority of Scripture, George is making a case for the differing viewpoints of its human authors being a strong witness to its authenticity. Once again, here's George. So as we press on, we're looking at the reliability of the Scriptures that we have and various claims that are made about that accuracy, including that Scripture is inerrant, without error, in matters of faith and morals or that it is absolutely accurate in every possible way because of the Holy Spirit's control of those who wrote it down. Now, several versions of these claims of inerrancy are made by different groups across the world. Almost all of those groups who differ are Protestant. Similar claims are made by the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, but they also talk both about the infallibility of Scripture and the infallibility of bishops of the church when they meet in official councils. Most Protestants do not agree with the infallibility of the bishops, even in official councils. Most Protestants don't. The point that I'm really trying to make here is that those who assembled the canon of Scripture, that is, the books that we have today in our Bible, they did not smooth things over and make them all look consistent or praiseworthy. There was no spin. They accepted conflicting stories and conflicts between individuals, and they did not excise, they did not remove reports about important godly people behaving badly. This says a great deal about their integrity and honesty as they assembled God's Word into the form that we have it now and passed it down to us. In other words, they looked at the Scripture and said, this is inspired by God's Spirit. We dare not change it, even if we can't explain the differences and difficulties. So that's what we know about the New Testament. The Old Testament was completed long before Jesus was born. The New Testament books began to be written perhaps 30 to 40 A.D., and they were likely complete by the year 100 or so. But they circulated individually and separately. They were copied and passed hand-to-hand, along with many other early Christian writings, some terrific, some not long before the books began to be collected together into the New Testament that we have today. Assembling the Bible, including deciding which writings to include and which to exclude, was a complex process of debate, prayer, time, and seeking of the Holy Spirit. There was plenty of hand-wringing and disagreement along the way, and it took until the year A.D. 397 before it was complete, before the full Bible, the Old Testament, which was already intact, and the New Testament, the new scriptures which were added to complete the Bible that Christians use today. 
It took until the year 397 before that assembly was complete. And even at that, with all of the prayer, hard work, and argument that went into choosing which books to include and which to leave out, there are still advocates for change in the list of the acceptable books to include. Martin Luther himself, the spark plug of the Protestant Reformation, the vocal proponent of sola scriptura, which means scripture alone, as the source of faith for all, called the book of James an epistle of straw. And he didn't think it measured up to being included in the New Testament, although he left it there. Recently, some have advocated adding the Gospel of Thomas, an old Gnostic text rejected by the early church, as a fifth gospel book. And there remains an ongoing debate about the inclusion of intertestamental literature, the Apocrypha, in the Bible. Most Protestants exclude the Apocrypha entirely. Some include it as non-canonical, but valuable for spiritual insights, and some, including the Roman Catholics, include it as a regular canonical part of their Bibles. I won't open up these debates other than to acknowledge that they exist. My regard of Scripture is similar to that of the early church as they assembled the canon, as they put the Bible together. I believe it is reliable and inspired by the Holy Spirit. But I do not feel the need to explain away areas of contradiction or conflict. The Apostle Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. This is a valuable and healthy understanding of Scripture. In this quote, Paul was referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't exist yet. Paul's letter to Timothy, where that quote comes from, well, at that time it was, well, a letter to Timothy from Paul. Today we also accept this letter and the whole New Testament as also God-breathed and useful to teach us what is true. We affirm the work of the Holy Spirit in the mind and heart of the author's as they wrote the text that we read today. Now let's look a little bit at inerrancy. There are some churches where this term is common and well understood, and there are other churches that haven't really heard this word before. The inerrancy of Scripture is a common affirmation in statements of faith among some Protestant groups. What does it mean? The noun inerrancy goes back only to 1818, to an introduction to the critical study and knowledge of the Holy Scriptures by Thomas Hartwell Horn. Ironically, he used the word for the opposite purpose of its more recent advocates, and he said, absolute inerrancy is impractical in any printed book, and he included the Bible in that statement. The adjective form inerrant is a little older than his book, and it's from the Latin root errare, which means to err or wander. 
The word was first used in English in 1652 to refer to wandering stars, that is, to planets. Inerrant, thus, referred to fixed stars, real stars, so far away that they did not appear to move, though, of course, in reality they do. Now, there are obvious errors in the many copies we have of the original texts of Scripture. And so the claim of inerrancy isn't made about the copies, which are all we have. We know that they are not without error. For those who affirm inerrancy, the claim is made instead about the original autographs. They are perfect, it is said, because the Holy Spirit inspired the authors. Holy Spirit inspiration is a good thing. Nevertheless, we should ask, If God inspired the authors of Scripture, would He not also inspire the readers? If we are given the Holy Spirit when we become believers, does He take up residence in us for no purpose? Didn't Jesus say the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth? And if Scripture contains truth about God and His purposes and counsel for us, wouldn't the Holy Spirit naturally lead us into it? God inspired the writers of Scripture, but He didn't leave it simply to ink and paper to carry His Word and His intentions to our hearts. He also inspires us as we read it. Just as God was very serious when He inspired the authors of Scripture to write, so He is also very serious when He inspires the committed readers of Scripture to read. And we should be very serious when we invite Him to lead us in our study of the Bible. We don't meet just words on paper in the Scriptures, however perfectly recorded. We meet Him. And though we will often get things wrong, He honors our willingness and guides us patiently to the truth. So let me summarize. We have good evidence that the scriptures we have today are faithful copies of what was originally written. We have none of the original copies. None have been found. Perhaps someday they will, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in Qumran in Israel. But today we don't have any original documents, but we have good reason to believe that they are faithful copies. In various parts of the church, assertions are made about their infallibility or their inerrancy, and I would simply say that different sectors of the church have a different view. What we do have is God's testimony about himself, his self-revelation in Scripture. And the Holy Spirit was given both to the authors of Scripture and given to us to understand what was written for our benefit. What a great reminder that when we study Scripture, we're actually studying God. And it only makes sense that God would meet us in that study and help us grasp the truths of who He is and how we're to live in light of who He is. We hope you're going to join us next time for another edition of What We Believe and Why.